0: Animals and the angels were ministering to him. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God, saying, The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea. For they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we thank you so much for preserving your word. Not only uh, that which is found in what we call the Old Testament, but we, we, have, we have preserved the accounting of your human life and your incarnation, your ministry, your sermons, your miracles. And then, of course, the initiation of the church and the letters, the letters that your spirit compelled the apostles To write to the church in the first century. These things you have guarded after they were inspired. These things you have preserved. And by your grace, these things you have given to us. Oh Lord, may we look to these words for life, for authority, for joy, and for purpose. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Happy New Year. (laughs) I've long been intrigued by a statement I heard years ago from uh, Alistair Bay. It's this simple trinity, if you will. Um, God's work, God's way, in God's world. It's something of a summary of the Christian life. God's work, God's way, in God's world. And when I look at the opening chapter of Mark's Gospel, I can't, can't help but see something of this phrase being lived out by Jesus. And as such, you might say Jesus is our example. He's doing God's work in the Imago Dei. What was man's purpose in the Garden of Eden from the very beginning? It was to be a reflection of God himself in his world, living his way. Right? The image of God on earth. Well, Jesus, as our great high priest and example, is doing exactly that. He is doing God's work as the image of God in human form. He's doing man's job. Then you might say he is doing it God's way. In his purity, in his perfection, in his humility, he's doing God's work God's way. See, the the danger is to attempt to do God's work your way. All right? And you might say there are examples all over modern Christendom. ...of men who are attempting to do, quote-unquote, God's work, but they're doing it their own way, seemingly, almost assuredly, for their own gain. So the the components are critical, each of them, God's work, God's way. And then you might say, thirdly, that that Jesus is doing this um, in God's world... Which is simply to say, with the complete recognition that God is at the center of the universe, metaphorically, spiritually speaking, not man. This is God's world. You're in it, <laughs> all right? We're in it, but it's God's world. It's not our world. The first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism what is the chief aim of man? It's to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Our primary purpose, the primary thrust of our existence is to reflect glory to God. It is an interesting study in the name of Lucifer um, that he's described as, as one who is, um, who is covered, if you will, head to toe in brilliant gemstones. He's described as, as, as one who uh, was, was an absolute reflection of beauty. But this was the idea. The gemstones themselves do not generate light. They merely reflect the light. And they look pretty in doing it, right? Ladies, you got that diamond ring on your finger, right? And the diamond is, it's the best one, I guess, because it, in theory, reflects all the colors of light. And so you put it in the sparkly light and, and you know, you go... Right? You know? Ah, you know? I don't know. I, I guess that's what happens to you when we get down on one knee. We're just hoping for the best, you know? But, but what's the point? You put a diamond in the dark room, it doesn't do anything for you, does it? But you put a diamond in the light, and you look at it in the angles, and all of a sudden it reflects all of this brilliance. Well, this is the idea behind Lucifer. He doesn't generate glory, he is covered in gemstones, his objective is to reflect God's glory back to him. And in his selfishness or self-absorption, the theory is that Lucifer began to see himself as the generator of light, as opposed to the reflector of light, and down was his fall, right? Great was his fall. So we're attempting to do God's work, God's way, and God's world, and here I believe Jesus shows us an example of doing God's work, God's way, in God's world, subservient to the Father as the perfect man as we are to be. Now, the start of the new year is typically accompanied by New Year's resolutions. How many have made some? Wow, three, four, five, that's six. Either we're lying or we're just like, we forgot that it was a new year. Is it really that unpopular of a thing to do anymore? It's like the world is ending, you know, just, you know? Forget it. Economy's crashing. All right, for the six of you who made resolutions, how many of you have already fudged on them at least a little bit? It's January 7th, yeah, I'm right there with you. Well, despite our repeated acts of inconsistency and lack of commitment, the start of a new year is typically a good time uh, to reflect and redirect, reflect and redirect. Redirect. That's what New Year's resolutions are all about, right? I mean, if you've achieved absolute perfection, there'd be no reason for a new resolution. So you reflect, and you go, uh, and you attempt to redirect. Reflect on the previous year, and redirect your efforts, focus, and disciplines going into the new. I say this in all seriousness, um, and with with every ounce of genuine compassion that I have for you as your friend, as your brother in Christ, and as your pastor— It is my hope that we leave this sermon and enter into the new year with hearts full of joyful anticipation and with eyes filled with the tears of repentance. In lieu of a longer intro, I want to dive into point one, recognizing that this will best set the stage. We're going to purposely take more time with the first than with the last two. So using that that, that triad from Alistair, let's consider, number one, God's work. God's work. When I say, or when Alistair says, God's work, what are we talking about? This is an important phrase. We're talking about effective Christian ministry. Effective Christian ministry done by... Effective Christian ministers. That's God's work. The question is, who are the Christian ministers? Hmm? Now, if you answer that question in your mind, pastors, you are not wrong. If you answered the elders of the church, plural, you're also not wrong. Uh, but the word ministry, as it is used of the angels there in verse 13, the angels were ministering to Jesus. Uh, the word is service. And so who are the servants in the church? Well, those who understand church polity and structure know that the servants of the church, the chief servants you might say, are the deacons. That's what the word means. It's diaconos. Same word used here as is used in Acts and the establishment of the office. So who are the servants in the church who are doing Christian service, ministry? Well, The deacons, for sure. So definitely the pastors, certainly the elders, plural, certainly the deacons. They're servants, after all. Is anyone else involved in Christian ministry? That is the service as part of the local church? Well... We would probably rightly say that Sunday school teachers and other like group teachers are serving the tur- church. They are ministering, aren't they? They are ministering to families as they teach your children. They are ministering to you as they prepare and facilitate weekly lessons. So certainly your Sunday school teachers, both in the men's and women's class and those serving in the children's ministry and teaching... They're certainly meant to be Christian ministers. Well, who else? Anybody else? You, you could probably branch that out to discipleship group leaders too, couldn't you? I mean, they might not teach a class, but they are teachers of three or four each week, modeling godly disciplines, blazing the trail for others to follow. They're certainly ministers. Anyone else? Well, moms and dads probably, right? Right. I mean, they're ministering to their children, leading them in family worship and Bible study. They're evangelizing their own children. They are the primary disciples of their own children. I suppose you might also lump in anyone who facilitates a Bible study, like on your lunch hour at work. You might also say, if you you were to invite someone into your home... Who needs to know Jesus and who needs to know and experience His love and His kindness and the truth of the gospel. You're certainly ministering to them, aren't you? You see where this is headed? Yeah. We are all called to effective Christian ministry. It has been a misnomer of the church that the pastors are the ministers. Now the people. The people are the ministers. In fact, there was a, there was a news article, um, this was back in, the, I believe it was in the 70s, um, that, was, that was published in Southern California. And it was, it was titled, The Church with 900 Ministers. And you might say, well, what kind of church is that? What are they talking about? What they're talking about is Grace Community Church, pastored by John MacArthur, after he went through a series on the spiritual gifts. Recognizing that every member in the body has been given spiritual gifts and therefore has an obligation to exercise those gifts. And it began to revolutionize the way an entire church thought about Christian ministry to the point that the only way to summarize this body of believers is to call it a church with 900 ministers. We are all called to Christian ministry. Listen. Listen you are either doing it effectively or poorly, either in the strength and humility of the Spirit of God or in the frailty and failure of your flesh, either with the intention of one who is called and clear-minded and focused or as one who is absent-mindedly going through the motions While a thousand other priorities take precedent over your calling to effective Christian ministry. Peter uh, used the phrase a royal priesthood when he described the church of Jesus Christ a royal priesthood. Those words were first applied to the nation of Israel, but later universally applied to the whole church, Jew and non-Jew alike. A royal priesthood is certainly called to Christian ministry. The priests had a big job. So, at the start of a new year, Christian, how is your ministry going? At home, at work, in the neighborhood, in your online activity and interaction, how's your ministry going? Well, if we're going to do Christian ministry effectively, recognizing the truth. ...of the previous statement that we are all called to Christian ministry, we have to ask ourselves, how is it that Jesus did this? How does Jesus compel to do effective Christian ministry? What is it that makes our activity on the earth as members of the church effective? Well, the answer lies in Jesus, our model... The first thing we would note if we're going to do God's work, God's way in God's world is that Jesus did it walking in victory over sin. (coughs) Jesus did it walking in victory over sin. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, verse 12, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now, we know the gospel, those of us who know our Bibles. We know the companion portrayals of the temptation of Jesus, and we know the rest of the text of Scripture that says Jesus didn't fail, right? Tempted, yet without sin. And so Jesus shows us here by example, first and foremost, if we're going to do God's work, we've got to do it walking in victory over sin. Those who enjoy sustained gospel-centered lives do kingdom work with a pure heart. The fact is, friend, sin is meant to be an unwelcome intruder in the life of the believer, not a cozy house guest. That's right. John writes to the church, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Now he, he acknowledges what we're all thinking. No matter how hard I try, I still fail, Romans chapter 7. So John says, I'm writing to you that you may not sin. Now, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation or satisfaction for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him… But does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. How did Jesus walk? In victory over sin. Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs says, The Lord does not look so much at the work that is done as at the faithfulness of our hearts in doing it. Will you join me in Matthew and his companion piece? Matthew chapter 4. His, his companion account of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. It's these opening verses, 1 through 11. While there are a number of lessons to learn from it, and several ways to break these verses down, when it comes to Jesus' model for effective Christian ministry, I note a handful of things. But let's read it first. Number one, verse one, chapter four. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, and after fasting forty days and forty nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Quoting Scripture. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Verse 7, Jesus said to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Well, again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And the devil left him. And behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Three things. Number one, effective ministry is done by those who are faithful to the Lord over faithful to self. If you note, each temptation was self-serving in some way. Self-preserving, self-promoting. You're hungry? Have some bread. Why should you suffer at the cross? I'll give you the kingdoms. Self-preserving, self-promoting, faithfulness to self or faithfulness to the Lord. Effective ministers of the gospel are going to have to choose continually faithfulness to the Lord at the expense of self. Jesus did not pull any punches when he said this in Luke 9, 23. If you want to come after me, deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. Faithfulness to the Lord over faithfulness to self. That's the first thing. Secondly, effective Christian ministry is done by those who love God more than they love the temptations of Satan. That which Satan offers is always pleasing to man in some way. Wouldn't be a temptation otherwise. To Eve in the garden, what do you read? We read that she noticed the tree was pleasing. It was good for food, pleasing to the eye. Jesus was hungry after a 40 day fast. Bread would have been pleasing. And for you, that which Satan parades before your eyes is in some way pleasing to natural man. But those who are effective in Christian ministry love God more than they love the temptation Satan parades before us. Thirdly, effective Christian ministry is done by those whose lives are immersed and governed by God's word. These are all things that we just note in this interaction between the tempter and the savior. Jesus loves God more than he loves the temptations Satan throws at him. He's faithful to God over faithfulness to self. And his life is immersed and governed by the word of God. Immersed and governed. Saturated and subservient. One without the other will always lead to trouble. But notice in Jesus' responses a familiarity and an authority. He knows the word. He can recall it in a moment. And he is subject to the authority of the word. This is our model for victory over sin. You want to walk in victory over sin? Be submerged and subservient to God's Word. Effective Christian ministry is done by those who walk in Jesus' victory over sin. Not our own. We will fail. But where we fail, He is victorious. And because He is victorious, our failures do not define nor condemn us so Go, as Jesus said to the woman who was caught in adultery in John chapter 8, go and sin no more. And when you stumble, weep, confess, and go and sin no more. But Alistair puts it bluntly when he says it simply, it is imperative that we not only read God's word, we must also cherish it and be subject to it. Read it. Cherish it. Be subject to it. The first thing in doing God's work, God's way, and God's world is to do kingdom work, walking first in victory over sin. If you find your evangelism and the efforts thereof are blunted and stunted and ineffective, you can probably trace the source back to repeated and habitual sin. If you find your joy to be stunted, you can probably trace it back to repeated habitual sin. Just do a test, friend. Just do a science experiment on your own life. And just resist and repent and weep and mourn and read the scriptures and immerse yourself in them and live and walk in the opposite direction of all the sinful temptations, Satan throws at you repeatedly throughout the day. Just do a test and see if your joy and your boldness and your effectiveness does not skyrocket. You say, I don't, I don't get you. You're talking about victory over sin, effective Christian ministry. That sounds like the farthest thing from my life. Stop habitually sinning. And I say that with love and grace. You don't have the strength to do it. But in Christ, he says, you are not a slave to those sinful temptations. I think think this concept is so painfully foreign to us. Because we simply have not lived as Christians in the complete and utter rejection of the sinful temptations of the world. Maybe for a moment, maybe for a day, but not for any Sustained periods of time. So I encourage you to, I don't know, try a little science experiment, you know? Proof of concept, right? If we're going to do God's work, God's way, and God's world, it has to begin by walking in victory over sin. This is the will of God, Paul writes the Thessalonians, your sanctification. It begins there. Secondly, if we're going to do God's work, we've got to do it, if you're taking notes, number two, God's way. God's way. Back to Mark chapter 1, if you please. Let's observe in this next couple of verses the way Jesus did God's work. Verse 14, now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God saying the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This is God's way. This is God's way. He has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. Repent and believe in the good news. It's a clear and consistent message. J.C. Ryle says, This is that old sermon which all the faithful witnesses of God have continually preached from the very beginning of the world. From Noah down to the present day, the burden of their address has always been the same. Repent and believe. But what about generosity? What about I got to love our neighbor? And <laughs> Repent and believe. B- basketball camps and, you know, th- repent and believe. Right? Christian concerts in the park. Repent and believe. The message of Jesus was sufficient in his day, and it was sufficient for him. It must be as sufficient today as it was then. The Apostle Paul told the Ephesian elders when he left them for the last time. He says, the substance of my teaching had been repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 20 verse 21. This is the substance. This is what I've been teaching you all the time I've been with you for several years. So I could boil it down to this. Repent and believe. J.C. Ryle again says the great head of the church gave him a pattern. Repent and believe Repentance and faith were the foundation stones of Jesus' ministry. Repentance and faith must always be the main subjects of every faithful Christian minister's instruction. It's not just pastors. It's all of us. There was one consistent way God communicated to the nation of Israel... And through the nation of Israel to the rest of the world, repent and believe. Turn from your idols, turn away from your sinful self-indulgence, and turn toward the God of all creation. Over and over again. Deuteronomy chapter 31 through 4, the whole book of Ezekiel, Acts chapter 3. Here, let's turn and read. We don't have time, but we're going to do it because I'm fired up. (laughs) Acts 3, I'm going to read the whole chapter. It's not that long. Verse 1, Now Peter and John were going to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a man, from, a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that's called the beautiful gate, to ask alms, that is to ask for money of those who are entering the temple. Verse 3, Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive some alms, and Peter directed his gaze at him. He said, Look at me, as John did, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver, I have no gold, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking. And praising God, and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were all filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Now, while he clung on to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. He was prepared to preach, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Why do you stare at us? As though by our own power or piety we have made him walk. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead, to this we are witnesses, and his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you, now, whom you see and know, and the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. Now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your leaders, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent! Therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. That's a sermon right there. That'll preach, as they say. Repent and... Believe, if we are to do God's work in God's world, we've got to be committed to doing it God's way. Alistair Begg writes in a Christian manifesto: "Quote. In previous generations, churches built hospitals, orphanages, and libraries. Ours, we build atriums, gyms, and coffee houses." Ever since the emergence of the church growth movement in the 1990s, which said every church that looks like Hillcrest is a failure, every church must be 5,000 or else it's dead. The church growth movement of the 90s told every local church around the globe that unless you're doing this, you're failing, dead, stale, etc. Ever since then, the church in America has "...has skewed away with obvious holdouts but large strokes. The church has skewed away from the time-tested and biblically supported method of growing God's church. In the place of this clear message, repent and believe, we have adopted the methods of the, the world to gather crowds. And then with foolhardy good intentions, I believe, we ask God to bless the effort." I'm going to do your work my way. Please bless it. What if, in 2024, we reclaimed that timeless and clear message? Repent and believe. And then showered our community with love, sacrificially, as we proclaimed it. What if? What if just a hundred people in Northwest Charlotte do it for one year what if what if we stop indulging our sinful impulses what if what if we delete the apps and take a sledgehammer to the to the To the computers that are such a temptation, what if we resisted the urge to gossip and ruthlessly resisted the urge to self-promotion and self-exaltation and and self-awareness and self-centeredness and set our eyes on the God of all creation and immersed our minds and our hearts with the text of Scripture and ruthlessly put ourselves under the authority of the text of Scripture in spite of what the world tells us is good and right and supposed to be done? What if… See, this is is the theory of the local church pastor. You see? I I think it's really, it's one of two options. For every local church pastor, every guy who stands in pulpits like this one who's doing the same thing I'm doing right now. There are two potential what-ifs in his mind at all times. One it's what if my church wasn't 100, but if it was 5,000? What if I was the man everybody wanted to come and see, Right? What if my books were in every bookstore and I was being asked to come to conferences so much that I'd have to sit in my room with a phone and just answer it like this? No. No. Because I am in demand. That's one very common potential what if for every Steve Gompers in pulpits this morning. The other is like this. What if everyone in my church loved Jesus and served him wholeheartedly? What if everyone who has a half-hearted commitment to the assembly came every Sunday instead of going to sporting events? What if every family in our church had family worship at night and catechized their children and read the scriptures and sang together and loved on their neighbors? That's the other what if. You see, church? And like a mad scientist, like I desperately want to do the experiment. What would happen? What would happen in our church? What would happen through our church? Yeah. If we are to ask God to bless our work, we must be humble enough to be willing to do it God's way. Foolish enough To believe that it is is his spirit who draws men to himself, not our programs, okay? And bold enough to trust him with whatever the results might be. Well, brings us to the third piece, which is to say doing God's work, God's way in God's world. In God's world. How did Jesus intend to build his church long after his physical presence had ascended to the throne of heaven? By entrusting the message to faithful men. And that's what we see back to Mark chapter 1 in verses 16 through 20. We get just a snapshot of it. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting nets. They were fishermen. Jesus said, follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in the boat, mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat and the hired servants and followed him. How did Jesus intend to accomplish God's work, doing it God's way in God's world long after he had ascended to the throne? By entrusting the message to faithful men. Who would entrust the message to faithful men? Who would entrust the message to faithful men? If we hope to do God's work, God's way in God's world, we must look both to Jesus' method and to the response of those whom he called. And what was Jesus' method? Slowly, patiently invest in a small number of people, faithful men, and then compel them to replicate that formula. Go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I commanded you. Well, they did, right? And then we recognize that that message got passed on. Jesus said it to the apostles, and the apostles then said it to their mentor, or their protégés. Paul writes to Timothy, What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men, who will be able to teach others also. It took Jesus three years... To build his followers to a faithful 120 men and women. Kind of like, like this room. This is it. Jesus is crucified. He's resurrected. Those who did not believe who were only hanging around for the free meals and the miracles and the exciting things. Not so exciting when the guy who was doing the healing is now being crucified. I'm out. Peace. And so it had whittled down to the faithful. Those who truly believed. Those who were prepared to deny themselves and take up their cross and follow Jesus in his footsteps. 120. Like this right here. And they were praying in the upper room in Acts chapter 1. And the spirit of the Lord descended upon them. This was God's formula. To rescue the world. And it probably looked kind of like I'm looking at you. It probably looked like you. Some of you are impressive, intelligent, successful. Some of you, I don't know. Right? Just a hodgepodge. Just people. Young, old, different strengths, different weaknesses. God said, This is how I'm going to save the world. That was his method. Dig deep with a few and invest patiently. And the response we see there again, those same verses. Jesus' method was to call a few, and what was their response? It was immediate and it was obedience. Pretty straightforward. They obeyed. They followed. They heard the word and obeyed. It's not more complicated than that. They heard the word and obeyed. They heard the word and obeyed. God's work, God's way, and God's world. They didn't just obey once. They didn't just obey when it was peaceful. They didn't just obey when it cost them little. They obeyed and obeyed and obeyed and obeyed unto death. Peter was crucified upside down because he would not recant his claims that Jesus is the Christ. James was beheaded because he would not recant that Jesus is the Christ. John, boiled in a vat of oil because he would not recant that Jesus is the Christ. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. On and on, the gruesome accounts of their deaths continue. I won't describe them in mixed company. They never recanted. Save for Judas, of course, right? And his betrayal ate him alive and he took his own life. See, church. The primary objective of the Christian. The chief aim is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But as a human being, how we accomplish that. Those who are genuinely redeemed. Our goal is to uncover the purpose of our salvation. Right? Why you? Right? Why would God redeem you? Out of all the billions on the planet, and certainly the billions who are on the broad road to destruction, why would He redeem you? What is the purpose of your salvation? This must be the preoccupation of the Christian. We find ourselves described as soldiers equipped for for battle with spiritual armor in Ephesians. seems our purpose is to fight something. We find ourselves described as spiritual members of one body in 1 Corinthians 12... So it would seem our purpose is to work together. We're called a spiritual kingdom in Matthew 13. So it would seem that our purpose is to work together unto broader communal good under the service of the king. What's the purpose of our salvation? Spoiler alert. It isn't to set your mind at ease so that you can live your own life your own way, doing your own thing, with fire insurance in your back pocket. Why are you here? To glorify glorify God. Why are we here? We must be prepared to say to ourselves and to say to others, our goal as Christians is to do God's work, God's way, in God's world. Therefore, we must be willing to compare everything against the authority of Scriptures. The authority of the Scriptures. Our emotions. Western 21st century sensibilities. Our preconceived insights about life in the Bible. Our human wisdom and experiential knowledge. And so on. It all must fall under the authority of God's Word. If we are unwilling to do this, Yahweh is not our God. We are our own gods. My emotions trump the Scriptures. My experience in the business world trumps the Scriptures. You see, on and on it goes. My emotions, my thoughts, my opinions, my gut instincts are what I go by. And when the text of Scripture smacks up against them, who wins? Your gut or the Scriptures? This is the way the apostles lived in God's world. They heard the Word and obeyed. Now once we have that battle out of the way, which is to say everything I bring to the table is subservient to the text of Scripture. Once that battle is out of the way, while it might be a continual battle, Romans 7, but but once we have settled in our minds that our human instincts and will and intellect and gut feelings and opinions and so forth are all suspect at best and must be continually surrendered to the the authority of the Word… Then and only then do we take the first step in discovering and executing the purpose of our salvation. To do God's work, God's way, and God's world. May it be so in our lives in 2024.